Thank you, Roseanne, for your ministry and music. As I said in the beginning, we're going to be continuing our series on the, the book of Exodus. And I just want to start by recapping what we saw last week in case you weren't with us or just to jog your memory as to where we were at in the book of Exodus. So Exodus begins by continuing the story left off by Genesis. So it, it really just flows from the end of Genesis right into the beginning of the story of Exodus. It's a continuation of that first book of the Bible. We, fought, we found last week, we looked at Exodus 1, and we, we found that the family of Israel multiplies greatly as they live in a foreign land, the land of Egypt. Israel's numbers were growing greatly so that they were literally becoming a nation within the nation of Egypt. This was not their land, it was a foreign land, but they were becoming a nation in a foreign land. And, and we saw that it, it began peaceful. Okay, it began with peace. They were welcome. They were honored guests uh, in the land of Egypt. And then all of this changed with a new ruler who looked at Israel, looked at this growing nation as a, as a threat. He sought to control them and stunt their growth. And he did so first by working them as slaves. He put Israel to violent, grueling, and hard work. But we saw this only fueled Israel's growth. It didn't stunt their growth at all. Then the Pharaoh gave a command to those who would be the first to see a baby, the midwives, and he directed them to kill the Israelite boys, not the girls, but the boys. And we found that the midwives, they refused to do so. And then our chapter ended, the very last verse of the chapter, with the third plan, the third installment of Pharaoh's plan, and that was to command all of the Egyptian citizens, so not, not just the authorities, but any citizen of Egypt, to hunt down and kill the baby boys by drowning them in the Nile River. So Exodus 1 ends with this setting. This is the setting as we move into to Exodus chapter 2 this evening. And it ends in this environment where the Israelite nation is receiving great persecution. They are at the mercy of an evil king. And they are left to watch as their newborns are tossed into the Nile River. As we think about this, what an evil world. What an unjust world. What a horrible time as you think about being an Israelite. What a horrible time to live as an Israelite. And as we think about and we leave Exodus 1, deliverance is needed. Deliverance from this world is needed. And in our chapter this evening, we are literally zoomed into just one specific family in Israel. So last week was really a big picture of all of Israel. Now we are zoomed into one specific family to one specific baby boy who is born in this world that Exodus 1 opens with. This baby boy, we're not told directly in our chapter this evening, but we find out very soon in, in Exodus that this baby boy is the man God uses as an instrument to deliver the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. So as we come to Exodus chapter 2 this evening, the theme of this chapter is after Exodus 1, deliverance is needed. Exodus 2 ushers in deliverance, not fully, but at varying degrees. So we're going to see deliverance is definitely shown throughout Exodus 2, but we don't get full deliverance yet. So our first section, we'll have three this evening. The first six section is the deliverance of Israel's future human leader. And this covers the first ten verses. And we see Exodus 2 opens as a mother defies the king of Egypt. 
Follow along as I read Exodus 2, 1 through 2. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So we open on an Israelite family, and specifically it's, it's from the family of Levi. And if you notice, we're given no names. Okay? No names are given up to this, this point for this family. But we are told that they have a son, which again, going with the flow of this story, this is not good. As we found at the end of chapter 1 again, and I have this verse for us, chapter 1 ends and says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So it's the sons that are to be tossed into the Nile, and it is a son that is born to this family. Upon his birth, there is a death threat upon this baby's head. And we're told then that this mother saw that he was a fine child. I don't know if you've ever come across this, this phrase as you're, as you're reading in Exodus and have wondered, what does it mean by a fine child? Okay, some, some take this to speak of the child's appearance, that he was beautiful, attractive. Some take this as that he was a healthy child. Some take this to mean that this, this mother knew that her child was no ordinary child, that this was a special child, so she'll save him. And even further, some take this to, that, that this mother knew that God had a special plan for this, this baby. The Hebrew word fine has a range of meanings, and, and that's why um, many look at this, is, this word and interpret it in different ways. But as we look at this passage, there's not a lot to go on from this just this simple phrase that this mother saw, he was a fine child. Do I believe that God specially chose this child, that he would use him in the future? Yes, but I don't believe we can see that this mother knew this at this point. I think a great option as we think about what does this word fine mean is to look to see how the author of Exodus uses it in some of its, his other writings. And as I said, this is a pretty frequent word that's used, but Think of place, and, and we see the author doing this, going back to Genesis and referring and connecting back to Genesis. I want to go back to Genesis and show us where this word is used, and I think in a, in a similar way. When God's creating, in Genesis 1, 3 through 4, he says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Same Hebrew word translated into a different word in our English. And then Genesis 1.31, God says this a lot, just another example in the creation story. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So good here in the creation account speaks of being beneficial, orderly, purposeful. So when it says that this mother saw this child was fine or good, I believe it is showing at the very least that she valued his life. She treasured her son's life and we see this from her actions. As we move on in this, this same verse, it says that she hid him three months. So she directly defies the king's orders. She will not allow the Pharaoh or his people know she has given birth. She, she keeps him uh, from being found out. And as we think about this story, her actions resemble two other women that we saw last week, Shifra and Pua, the midwives who disobeyed the king's orders. So this is the third woman to defy the king's orders. 
Then we find this mother's rescue plan. So she defies the king, she hides her son, and then we get her rescue plan. She can't hide him anymore after three months. So we find that there, of course, comes a time when keeping the child hidden is impossible, so the mother builds an ark. Look with me at verse 3. It says, When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. So the mother, as I said, she can no longer keep this this child um, hidden. He would be found, so she makes a basket. And this, this word basket is the same exact word that's used for Noah's ark. Okay, For the, the boat that Noah builds, it's the same exact word that's used here when it says she took for him a basket. We could say she took for him an ark. Same word that's being used in another connection to Genesis. And though a lot smaller in size, this ark was going to be used to bring someone to safety. Just like Noah and his family were brought through the waters in safety, God saved them through the ark. So too, she's making this basket, this ark for safety or as safety for her son. The basket here is made from a material that was used to make paper. So the, the word that's used here um, and, and the, the items that uh, it's talked about, it's used to make paper, but it worked for this purpose as well as it could float. So the material that she has, it would float in water, and the mother takes it, and we're told that she places it in the water among the plants in the Nile. And that's important. We'll come back to this, but it says, if you look at the end of verse 3, it says she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So she placed it there for it to stay there. And at this point, if we're just walking along this story, if we didn't know what this story uh, said we're left to wonder what the mother is doing. Okay, she's taking steps to protect her son. We see that. And though she's now placing him in a boat that floats, she's placing him in water. And, and maybe more importantly, she's placing him in the place that Pharaoh had commanded uh, the Egyptian citizens to toss their baby. She's placing him in the Nile. And we'd a- we could ask, why is she doing this? Some question how intentional the mother's actions are here and in the coming verses, they ask, is this an intentional plan, or, or did it happen without her foresight? She's kind of just making this up as she goes. She's, she's deciding to do this, see what happens. But I think as we move through this text, I believe she's very intentional with what she's doing here. Though it's not exactly said clearly that she's intentionally doing this, I think from the next things we see, she's anticipating and planning out the, the things that would take place for her son. She's not just leaving it up to chance. We see this next by, or this intentionality by, his sister is stationed to watch over him. As it says in verse 4, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So again, it doesn't say stationed, but I believe that it's not just the sister choosing to watch her baby brother that her her mother places this this basket in in the water, and then the mother leaves, and then the the sister comes on her own. But I, I think the mother is placing her daughter there to watch over this baby. And as we think about why didn't the mother stay, I think we're going to see from some of the things that take place that maybe the sister wouldn't draw as much attention. She's just a little child by the, by the river. And maybe even as we see the events that are going to take place, the sister would be a, a more unsuspecting uh, person than the mother would with what's about to take place. So we move on. We find out that this ark has been placed where the Egyptian princess 
would bathe. As it says in verse 5, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds. So uh, there's some animated movies that are, are made of this story. Think of the Prince of Egypt and leaving the Prince of Egypt, the basket literally floats down the river and, and goes by crocodiles and things like that. We find that that's not what takes place here. Okay, As it says that this princess found the basket among the reeds, right where the mother had placed this basket. So it didn't move. And now we're told that the daughter of Pharaoh sees the ark among the reeds. It hasn't moved. And I think this shows, and I, I point this out uh, and compare it to these, these animated movies because I think this shows that the mother was intentional. She placed it among the reeds, knowing this was the place that the Egyptian princess would bathe, that she would see this. She would, uh, would pique her interest seeing a basket in the water. So we're told she sees the basket, which if we pretend if we don't read the story, which is helpful as we read some of these very familiar stories, if you just come to it with fresh eyes and pretend as if you didn't know what was going to happen next, we might wonder at first, why would the mother want this princess of all people to discover her Israelite son, knowing her father, the Pharaoh, wants him killed. So why would the mother place this in the place that this princess would come to? But then we would wonder as well, what is the princess going to do with him? Okay, it says, she saw the basket among the reeds. What's she going to do? Will she follow her father's orders and dump the basket out into the Nile, killing the child? So again, if we haven't read this story, there's some suspense here. What's going to happen next? So we see the mother's plan worked out, and now we get to see the results. What will happen to this baby boy? So we get the results, and this comes in the second half of, of the passage. The Egyptian princess has compassion on him. Look at me at verse 5 again. It says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to, to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. All right, so she discovers the basket. She says, go get the basket, and even at this point, we could wonder what's she going to do with the basket. She finds the baby crying in the basket, and we're told then, amazingly, it says, she took pity on him. She took pity on him, meaning she had compassion for this baby. She cared about him. Her, her, her heart went out to this crying little boy. She shows that she does not share the inhumane views that her father does. So maybe we don't know this at all, but maybe from afar she did. Maybe she thought she was for uh, her father's commands. But now she comes face to face with one of the Israelite baby boys, and her response is not to dump the basket, not to turn the basket over or to be apathetic, but her go heart goes out to this little guy. And as we think about this, we can't say that she isn't aware of who he is or what his nationality is, as her first words that she speaks is, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So she knows this is enemy number one of her nation, and yet she feels for this baby. What an outcome to the plan of this baby's mother. We find then that the sister involves herself in this finding. It says in verses 7 and 8, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. So again, this seems planned. Okay, the baby's sister, who has seen all of this develop before her eyes, she goes and, and asks this Egyptian princess if she could use a Hebrew woman to feed the baby. And the princess agrees to this, and the sister, of course, goes and gets, of all people, this baby's mother. And then the scene in the mother's plan concludes by the Egyptian princess employing the mother and then adopting him as her son, as it says in verses 9 through 10. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So this Hebrew baby goes from being hidden by his mother to now this mother can happily care for her son. All right, so if you think about... Um, just the stress, the difficulty that the mother would have experienced those first three months caring for her son, feeding her son, but in, in hiding. Now she gets to comfortably take care of her, her son. Maybe one of the only Hebrew women that actually got to do this at this point in time, as the rest were probably hiding their children. And this was all because of, of all people, an Egyptian, the Egyptian princess. This Hebrew son ends up becoming this Egyptian princess's son as his mother returns him to the princess when he is older. She gives him the name Moses, and in a matter of ten verses, we find this baby goes from death to life. He goes from a family of slavery to a family of royalty. What a turn of events as we think about this young boy, Moses' life. And as we consider this first section, a few things I want to point out to us and, and specifically, two points of irony in these ten verses. And, and there's more that I could bring out. I wanted to bring two specifically. But these first ten verses, irony abounds. Uh, reversals of what Pharaoh wanted to happen abound. And the first one I want to bring out, the first of two, is that as we think about Exodus 1 and 2, Pharaoh saw the men as the threat. But it is the women who are the threat. His commands single out the males. Exodus 1, 15 through 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And then we already read this one, but again, I'll stress the, the male or female. It says in Exodus 1, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son, that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So Pharaoh very clearly sees the men as the threat. Okay, he's saying, let the daughters live. Okay? Essentially, they're no problem. They won't be any threat to me and my kingdom, but kill the sons. And we thought about this last week, and, and one of the reasons probably being is that these probably be the ones that would come up against him or, or join an enemy in fighting them. They would, the men would join the army, but we find in our passage that it's the women that are the threat. It's Shifra and Pua that allow male children to live in chapter 1. And now in chapter 2, it's the Hebrew mother, it's her daughter, and it's his, own, it's his own daughter, the Egyptian princess, that are used to protect the life of this Hebrew baby boy. It's through the defiance and the risks of these women that take, that take 
this future leader and ultimately protect him, care for him, and, and spare his life. So it's not men, it's women that end up being the threat. And then the second irony, and the point I want to bring out from these 10 verses is that it's Pharaoh's own daughter that not only disobeys, but adopts a Hebrew son as her own child. So Pharaoh's daughter commissions this boy's mother to feed him. She commissions her to do what her role is, the mother of this boy. And Pharaoh commands all male babies to be tossed into the Nile, and now his very own daughter saves a male baby from the Nile. A Hebrew boy ends up living in the palace of Egypt. These ironies show that Pharaoh is not in control. As ruthless, as powerful as he was, we see he's not ultimately in charge. And though God's name is never mentioned here in these ten verses, by the fact that this baby boy becomes the leader that God will call to lead his people, we see how God's hand was upon him from the start of his life. We see how God protected him and spared him through unexpected people and unexpected means. And, and just to draw out just one lesson for us from the fact that Exodus 1 and 2 seem to make quite a point of showing how it is women who are used to spare the male babies. It's through Shifra and Pua. It's through a mother and a sister. It's through Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh didn't see them as a threat. He didn't expect them to be Egypt's downfall. But they are who God used to protect his people. God can use those who do not seem like much in the world's estimation and do not seem like they can make much of an impact for his plans and his purposes. God used two women who had no children of their own to rescue baby boys from the clutches of death. God used a loving mother to deliver her son from, from death by the Nile. God used a sister to watch over her baby brother and, and provide a solution for his care. God used a daughter of a powerful man to raise an adopted son. You may be an ordinary mother seeking to raise your children in a Christian home. You may be a Sunday school teacher, a Wednesday night teacher, faithfully teaching the word of God to our children here in the church. You may be a sibling seeking to be a good, godly example to your brothers and sisters. Don't underestimate how the Lord can use you. He doesn't just use Abraham's or David's or Esther's or Moses, but he uses ordinary people who fear his name. So, uh, at least in this text, we're not even given, uh, I don't think ever we're given the Egyptian princess's name, but even in this text, we're not given the mother or the daughter's name. We find out who they are later on, but we find that it's people who seem insignificant that the Lord uses in our text. Pharaoh doesn't think they're a threat. So we're left with Moses being raised in the palace of, of Pharaoh. The future deliverer of Israel that God will work through begins his life in the midst of Israel's suffering, feeling it very much so as a baby. But also we see now he's brought up and he's raised in, of all places, the palace of Egypt. He's trained in the Egyptian ways. And as we think about this and we think about Moses and who, who he'll become, we can think, what a backstory. What a backstory we have of him being trained and brought up and raised in the Egyptian palace. But if you look at the next verses, we're not told about any of that. Okay? As interesting as it would be, the author of Exodus literally just skips many years of Moses' life. He goes from him being saved to now he goes to when he's grown up. He completely skips his growing up in the palace of Egypt, but we know he does. So we'll move to our second section, and that is a deliverance attempted by Israel's future human 
leader. So the second section opens by showing that Moses recognizes and shows interest in his family. Look with me at verse 11, how the second section opens. It says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. So as I said, we jump many, many years in Moses' life to when he's grown up, and what we're told about him seeing his people seems to be said in such a way that Moses was very intentional about what he was doing. Okay, he didn't just walk out one day and just happen to go by these Israelite slaves not knowing who they are or not with any feeling towards them. But he comes with interest, and I'd even say care and concern for his people, the Israelites. In verse 11, it speaks of his people, and and this literally is the word brothers. This is his family. This is his biological family members. Moses recognizes and will associate with them as his family. And as we think about this, it's interesting to think that growing up within Egypt didn't make him forget about his family or decide that he's not going to associate with his family anymore. But he goes out to them, and further, he goes out to see their slavery. As it says, again, it says, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Okay, that look, that seeing is intentional. Okay, he's just not happening uh, to just see it, but he's looking with intention. And the next part of verse 11 settles it if there was any debate as to who Moses will align himself with, as we find that Moses intervenes when, when an Egyptian was striking an Israelite. Look with me again at verse 11 and then 12. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And then it says, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So when Moses goes out to see his family enslaved, he comes across something that most likely was going on just daily an Egyptian striking an Israelite. And we saw last week the, the ruthlessness, the violence of this slavery. So we kind of get a, an inside picture as to what would take place in this slavery. And this Hebrew, this Israelite is literally being beaten. And we're not told if the Egyptian intends to kill this Israelite or if he does indeed kill the Israelite. But either way, Moses does, doesn't stand idle but he intervenes. He, he steps in on this situation, and he looks both ways to make sure no one's around, and he kills the Egyptian, and to make sure no one knows, he buries him in the sand. Moses would not stand by and let an Israelite be attacked. He steps in, and he goes to such lengths as to actually avenge this strike by, by killing the Egyptian. So he steps in. He intervenes. And then we find the next day, Again, he intervenes, and this time he intervenes as he seeks to reconcile two Israelites fighting. Look with me at verses 13 through 14. It says, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. So we find, uh, again, that Moses is not the type to see a fight and stand back letting it happen, but he intervenes and he questions, and we're we're told there was someone at fault here. It wasn't they were both equally at fault, but we're told that he, he questions the man in wrong. And the Israelites' response is to reject Moses' intervention. He says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? He questions, who are you to think you're over us? Who are you that you feel like you can intervene in this situation? 
This up-and-coming leader is rejected and resisted. And as we think about the rest of Exodus and, and then even think about numbers, and, uh, or especially numbers, we find this situation of Moses being rejected, his leadership being turned down, is be- going to become a common thing for Moses years later when he's leading Israel. So it starts at the very beginning. And additionally, as we think about this man's question, uh, we find his question is asked, pointing out that Moses is in the wrong. So Moses isn't innocent here. Okay, he says, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So not only is Moses' leadership and intervention rejected, but it's done so on the basis of Moses' fault. What he's done, that he's killed someone. And Moses, his reaction is, is he's scared, realizing this murder is known, it's no secret, but it's public knowledge. And as we think about Moses up to this point, we learn something about Moses' character here. That as we think about Moses, we think about this second chapter, I don't think we think a lot about uh, Moses' character, what this chapter reveals to us about his personality, his makeup. We often remember his murder, but taking these two times of intervention, it teaches us something about Moses' character and his makeup. We find what makes Moses tick. He could have dis- disassociated himself with this, with this people the Israelite people. He could have aligned himself with the powerful. That's how he grew up. He, he grew up among the royalty. So he could have easily just rejected the weak, the oppressed. He's above him. He's higher than him. But we see in these two instances, he associates with the weak and the oppressed. Moses could have easily turned a blind eye to the suffering of the Israelites. Again, just thinking about he lives in the, the palace of Egypt. He's comfortable. He's safe. Okay, He's apart from them. He could have easily just turned a blind eye and He knew what was going on, but he's not going to do a thing about it. But we find in these two episodes that Moses is one who will not stand for injustice. He will side with the weak, and additionally, he's going to intervene, and he's going to seek to to deliver. As we think about Moses' character, he is a man who is not bashful to stand up to wrongdoing and bullies. If you've ever experienced a fistfight, okay, most likely you have, but oftentimes when, when people are fighting with their fists, okay, oftentimes a, a group gathers. Okay? I experienced some growing up in school, and a group gathers around the people that are fighting, and there's those that are cheering. Okay? They're, they're excitedly cheering this on and maybe picking sides. There's those who are just observing. Okay? They, they stand back. They're going to watch. They aren't going to say a word. They're not going to get involved either. Moses is neither of these. He would jump right in, break it up, and and especially he would defend the one that's being picked on. Moses will not stand for injustice. He'll step in, he'll intervene, he'll seek to, to deliver. And as we think about this character trait that we find in Moses, it's an admirable thing. Okay, it's a it's a godly characteristic. We get to see the personality of Moses in these two episodes of intervention. So I want us to just just keep this in the back of your mind for a moment. And as we think about this story, the story moves on, and though Moses' motives were right, okay, shows a good thing about his character, what he did with those motives or how he handled this situation was not proper, was not correct, as he killed the Egyptian. And, And further, it was not time for Israel to be delivered. So we find the ramifications of Moses' murder in verse 15, 
we find that Moses runs away from Egypt. In Exodus 2, verse 15, it says, When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So he gets out of Egypt. He gets out of Egypt quick. And as we think about his intervention, we think about him delivering the people of Israel, it ultimately failed. He tried to step in, and, and it, it really backfired on him because of his own actions. He has not defended or delivered all of Israel, but he stepped in on two occasions, and they lead to him getting out of Egypt, or he would have been killed. So he has failed to make much of an impact, and for that matter, he's, he's really done harm as we think about the situation of Israel. And interestingly enough, and as you think about the character portrayal that I tried to point out, if you were doubting that at all as to, is this really what Moses is like? Interestingly enough, in our next verses, we find that Moses intervenes and he delivers once again. And this time, it's not just to his people. Okay, we might have thought, okay, maybe he has a bias to his biological family, Israel. But we find that he's willing to help people that are complete strangers. They're foreigners, people he did not know. So we see Moses intervenes, and he saves Midianite women. Look with me at verses 16 through 17. So he flees Egypt. He goes and sits at this well, and then this is what happens. It says in verse 16, Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So seven shepherdesses are mistreated, and Moses, he steps in and he rescues them. Moses is sitting at a well, and this scene just occurs before his eyes. They start, uh, these shepherds came, they drove, sought to drive them away. And as we think about this, Moses didn't know these women. He also would have been outnumbered, okay? It says shepherds in the plural, so he's just one guy. He could have sat there thinking, not going to mess with them. I'm outnumbered. He could have looked the other way, but he stands up and he gets involved. For Moses, it does not matter his relationship to the person, nor their nationality, nor their gender. He will stand up for those being wronged, those being picked on, those being mistreated. So we see it in Egypt. Now we see it in Midian. Three instances of Moses doing this. We see this as his character. He will not ignore injustice. Moses shows his character once again. And then we find that Moses ends up living in Midian. But he knows he does not belong. Look with me at verses 18 through 22. It says, When they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zephorah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses saves these, these seven women at this well. They go home. Their father asks them why they're back so soon, and he welcomes Moses into his home. And we find Moses, he settles in to live with Raoul, and he even gets married. And it might seem at this point, Moses has gotten out of Egypt, he's living in Midian. It might seem like Egypt is in 
the rear view mirror, that Moses' deliverance attempts have failed, he's moved on, and he's going to stay and, and really settle down in Midian. But the last verse, and with the name of Moses' son, we see this is not the case in this story, nor do I believe Moses had Egypt and his people completely out of his mind as he gives his son the name Gershom. And the reason for giving him this name is he says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Okay, I think this is important to see what's going through Moses' mind at this point. This isn't a throwaway name or reasoning. And I want to give us, it's a lengthy quote, but it explains this very well. And it's from Christopher Wright in his commentary on the book of Exodus. He explains what does this name and the reason exactly mean? What does it mean for our story? So I'd like to read this this quote at length, and it says, the question is, to which country is Moses referring when he says, when he speaks of a foreign land, Midian or Egypt? The answer to that depends on how we translate the verb. Does it mean I have become a foreigner? NIV emphasis added, which would refer to his present status in Midian, or does it mean I have been a sojourner, which would refer to his former life in Egypt? Either translation is grammatically possible. The truth probably is that Moses is affirming his status, past, present, or future, as a Gur, no matter where he lived. Neither Egypt nor Midian was his true home. Indeed, he was destined to remain homeless until his death outside the promised land and his burial in an unmarked grave somewhere in Moab. In that sense, the meaning of the name Moses gave his son, his first son, describes his own life. In that sense, also, as in so many others, Moses again embodies something of the reality of his people. And then the last slide with this. At the time of Gershom's birth, of course, the Israelites were indeed still foreigners in a foreign land. Even when they would eventually move into the promised land, they would retain the status of Gerim in God's sight. Yahweh alone was the true owner of the land, as of all lands. And Israel needed to remember that their presence there was by God's grace, gift, and faithfulness alone, and behave accordingly. So the naming of Moses' son shows that he understood that the land of Midian was not his home, and further, that the land of Egypt was not his home, as the people of Israel thought to the promised land, the land of Canaan. So there is an anticipation when it comes to this name of Moses' son, that Moses is going to go back to the land of Egypt, and further, as we're going to see in the book of Exodus, they're going to go back to the promised land or start to go back to the promised land, the land of Canaan. So this second section with the naming of Moses' son leaves us in anticipation. Anticipation for the days they're going to go, or Moses will go home. And before we move on to the last section, I want to just pause, and I want us to consider all that we've seen up to this point concerning Moses. At this point, Moses' story ends in our, our chapter. Okay, we'll Move, or it will pick up in chapter 3. But I want us to, to think about Moses. And, and in chapter 3, we do see that God will call him to be his human leader that will deliver Israel out of Egypt. This chapter, so chapter 2 up to this point, shows God's preparation for him to do so, for, for him to be this human leader, how God was forming and shaping him into his leader. Okay, this chapter shows that God's future leader, Moses, he could relate with Israel's suffering. His parents had a baby boy in the time of Pharaoh's edict to kill all baby boys. Moses could have easily been killed as a baby boy. 
Okay, when Moses came to the people of Israel, okay, we may have thought he might have had some issues relating with them as he had grown up in the Egyptian palace. He hadn't been enslaved like they were, but we see his start at the very least, his beginning. He could relate with Israel as there was a death threat upon his, his head. The Israelite people were part of his heritage. This chapter also shows God preparing Moses as he left Egypt and lived in Midian. Okay, he would actually become a shepherd. We see this at the beginning of chapter 3. He'd become a shepherd in Midian, preparing him ultimately to lead people. So not just sheep or not just livestock, but this time of shepherding was preparing him to lead and to shepherd God's people. And then thirdly, this chapter further shows Moses' character and nature to stand for justice, to step in to protect the weak and the mistreated. God had made Moses to be a man who was not a bully, but instead he would stand up to bullies. He would intervene as he encounters injustice. God would use Moses' view of justice in the future to deliver the people of Israel. But here in this chapter, God shows his future leader that when Moses stepped in, it was not his timing. It wasn't God's timing when Moses stepped in, and, and further, Moses did not handle this Correctly, He didn't handle it in the way that God would deliver his people. So just want to draw out two lessons or give us two things to consider from Moses' life as we think about ours. And the first is, consider how God has prepared you for the role he has called you to. So we see there's several things in this chapter. God preparing his future leader for the years to come, many years to come. What has God done in your life to prepare you for how he is using you today or even Think about this time as a preparation for the future. And then the second is to consider God's timing and his desire for how you, will, you are to handle the things he has called you to. So Moses stepped in with the right motives, the right desires, even godly motives and desires, but his timing and how he went about it was wrong. God would use him to deliver his people, but not yet. God would use him to deliver his people, but not in the way that Moses tries. And for us, you might believe you know what God has called you to. Maybe it's a specific job. Maybe it's a role here in the church. Maybe to stand up to injustice. But you must seek God's timing and God's ways of handling these things. So now we'll move to our last section, the last three verses of our chapter and that is a deliverance anticipated by the only one who can truly bring it, God. So we find that Pharaoh dies, and there's no change in Israel's situation. Look with me at verse 23. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of the slavery and cried out for help. So last week we saw with the political change, there's a new ruler. Everything changed for Israel. Okay, so Israel may have been hoping, once this pharaoh dies, once this ruler dies, then we'll be good to go. Then we'll go back to normal. But we find that with a new ruler, nothing change. changes for Israel. Okay, their hope cannot be in who rules. Israel's hope cannot rest in earthly kings. The chapter ends with who their hope should be in. And that's where God enters the picture. Look with me at these three verses. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And then it says this, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. 
God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So coming from Exodus 1, and now almost all of Exodus 2, this, these three verses should almost be like a, a tidal wave coming up and, and hitting us without suspecting it. Okay, God has briefly and barely been mentioned, mentioned in these two chapters up to this point. And now all of a sudden, this is why I say a tidal wave and not just a small wave, all of a sudden in five times in the, these three verses, God's name is mentioned. God had been hidden, silent, he had been in the background, and now he is brought to the forefront of this story of Exodus. The chapter closes anticipating deliverance by the hand of God. Now, we shouldn't be mistaken as we think about these words, and I want to look at each one just very quickly. We shouldn't be mistaken. If you look at these words, it almost uh, could seem like all of a sudden news of Israel's uh, situation came up to God. All of a sudden he found out. But that's not the case at all. These verses are to, to convey that God has been aware, and God is about to act. I'm going to look at these words and, and show how they really communicate that God was aware, God will act now from Terence, I think that might be Fratham, uh, how he explains this, I think he explains it in very understandable terms as to what each of these mean about God and, and his part in this. And the first is God heard, okay, it said God heard their groaning, okay? He says, this is not a reference to newly sensitive divine ears, as if God had not heard their cries before. It has the sense of to take heed of, to hear, to respond. So God didn't just all of a sudden get this news, but he's taking heed. He's hearing, and he's about to respond. God remembered. This does not refer to a jogging of the divine memory, as if God had forgotten promises made. To remember is to be actively attentive to that which is remembered. It is a divine sense of obligation to a prior commitment. God's remembering always means action that will affect the future. God saw. This does not refer to eye contact. It is to begin to move toward the other with kindness or sympathy. And then lastly, God knew. Again, this is not simply a matter of head knowledge, as if God gained some new information or insight into what is happening. It is to so share an experience with another that the other's experience can be called one's own. So God is fully aware and he's fully tied up in the suffering of his people. The time has come for Israel to be delivered and we're, we're really left to, to wonder as we leave Exodus 2, what will God do? How will he deliver the Israelites? So our chapter ends with God coming to the forefront, showing God had, for not, had not forgotten. He wasn't deaf. He wasn't blind to their situation. So we find that God knows his people's struggles. He knows what they're going through. He knows what we're facing. He knows the persecution that we're experiencing. He is fully aware. And it's our job to trust his timing, to trust that he is still in control. He still cares. We must have the faith or we must have faith in our suffering that God has a plan. The book of Exodus and the chapters to come show us God's plan to deliver people's Israel, the people of Israel. It's perfect. It's beyond our comprehension. So there might have been a lot of doubt as to God's part in this, but we're going to find that God definitely had a plan. He had a perfect plan to deliver the people of Israel. And so too, God has a perfect plan for us in our suffering. 
And often it can be beyond our imagination how he's going to work, how he's going to rescue in it. So Exodus 2, our chapter for this evening, ends anticipating the the deliverance that is going to be worked out in the chapters to come. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the message of Exodus 2. We thank you as we see your preparation, your forming, your molding of the man Moses for how he he started and and how you worked through unexpected people to protect his life, uh, to spare his life, uh, to really provide for him. Lord, we we thank you for just the way in which uh, you instilled within Moses just a a desire to to intervene, to deliver, to, to watch out for and guard those that are mistreated and oppressed. And Lord, even as we think about your part in our suffering, as we see you were definitely there, you were definitely aware and, and watching and, and hearing all of Israel's suffering, Lord, it's in your timing when you'd step in. And Lord, I pray that this would be a chapter that we'd walk away from realizing that you're preparing us, you are training us, you are working in us for the things that you've called us to do. Uh, Lord, you are giving us um, the training and the experiences uh, and the character that we need to do what you've called us to do. And and Lord, further, as we think about our suffering, we think about our distress and the things that we're experiencing, realizing that you have a plan for it, if it's either to rescue and deliver us or to work within it for your good. Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater trust and a faith in you out of Exodus 2. Lord, we just thank you for this time that we could gather, and we pray that we would live out your word. Strengthen us and provide for us. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this evening, and you are dismissed.